Hello and welcome back to The Anecdotalist. I'm your host, Paul Packard, and with me as always, my co-host, Jason McKinney. Hello everybody, I'm Jason. Welcome to our third episode. I'm excited to get into our first extraterrestrial episode. Tonight we'll be talking about the Rindlesham Forest incident, quoted as being the UK's Roswell. So we have a little bit of a situation here. Our original intent was to release three episodes as a type of beta test to figure out formatting, how to record, edit, and release episodes. In order to set the stage of what type of podcast we were running, I wanted to do one paranormal episode, one unsolved mystery episode, and then finally an extraterrestrial episode. So the issue is that I think I bit off a little bit more than I can chew with this episode. I knew going into this, we had a lot of material to work through, but I didn't realize how much there really was and the scope. The last thing I wanted to do was tell a story about an important event in this genre and then not do it justice. Even with all that I have to discuss, I think we're still only going to scratch the surface, but we're still going to hopefully cover all the important pieces of this story. So the plan now is to have a part one and a part two, and we'll be releasing four episodes at launch instead of three episodes. Okay, sounds good. I like this. I like this. So Jason, are you ready? I am so ready to go. Once again, out in the middle of the woods, you know, if there's crop circles or anything else going on out here, all by myself. If you see blue flashing lights coming in your window, good luck. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. (laughs) Okay, here we go. So I want to start tonight's episode by reading a letter from Deputy Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt to the UK Ministry of Defense. So Jason, are you ready? I am so ready for this. Okay, so subject, unexplained lights, two, RAF backslash CC, one, early in the morning of December 27th, 1980, approximately 0300, two US Air Force security police patrolmen saw unusual lights outside the back gate at RAF Woodbridge. Thinking an aircraft might have crashed or been forced down, they called for permission to go outside the gate to investigate. The on-duty flight chief responded and allowed three patrolmen to proceed on foot. The individuals reported seeing a strange glowing object in the forest. The object was described as being metallic in appearance and triangular in shape, approximately two to three meters across the base and approximately two meters high. It illuminated the entire forest with a white light. The object itself had a pulsing red light on top and a bank of blue lights underneath. The object was hovering or on legs. As the patrolman approached the object, it maneuvered through the trees and disappeared. At the time, the animals on a nearby farm went into a frenzy. The object was briefly signed approximately an hour later near the back gate. Two. The next day, Three depressions, one and a half inches deep, and seven inches in diameter were found where the object had been sighted on the ground. The following night, December 29, 1980, the area was checked for radiation. Beta-gamma readings of 0.1 millirankins were recorded with peak readings in the three depressions and near the center of the triangle formed by the depressions. Nearby tree had moderate 0.05 to 0.07 readings on the side of the tree toward the depressions. Three. Later in the night, a red sun-like light was seen through the trees. It moved about and pulsed. At one point, it appeared to throw off glowing particles and then broke into five separate white objects and then disappeared. Immediately after, three star-like objects were noticed in the sky. Two objects to the north, one to the south, all of which were about 10 degrees off the horizon. The objects moved rapidly in sharp angular movements and displayed red, green, and blue lights. The objects to the north appeared to be elliptical through an 8-12 to power lens. They then turned to full circles. The objects to the north remained in the sky for an hour or more. The object to the south was visible for two or three hours and beamed down a stream of light time to time. 
Numerous individuals, including the undersigned, witnessed the activities in paragraphs two and three. Wow. So one of the things that my wife is big into the alien stuff. So she watches all these um, shows about aliens. And one of the cool things that I've noticed about this is the way the ships move, the Air Force has noticed that they didn't have ships that can move the way these ships moved. Yeah. So one of the common things you typically hear is that these extraterrestrial vehicles move in patterns and in ways that kind of defy physics and, and our understanding of physics. And that's even to today when they talk about people that see UFOs, they often talk about these these crafts that move in ways that defy our understanding of how aircraft should move. That's crazy, man. Yeah, so as always, my plan for this episode is to give a brief timeline of the events that took place over the course of this story. And then we'll get into the details further on in this podcast. As always, I'm pulling from multiple sources, and I'll have those in the show notes. I did want to say a lot of this episode comes from the book Encounter in Rendlesham Forest. So it details the events of what happened there, utilizing both John Burroughs and Jim Penniston, the two main witnesses to this event. So we're going to start by talking about the night of December 26, 1980. A little after midnight on December 26, 1980, Airman First Class John Burroughs, stationed at the twin U.S. Air Force bases of Woodbridge and Bentwaters, noticed lights in the nearby Rendlesham Forest. At the time, Burroughs, who was security forces and patrolman at RAF Bentwaters, was patrolling near the back gate of Woodbridge when he saw red and blue lights east of his location. After notifying his supervisor, Staff Sergeant Bud Steffens, the two looked at the flashing lights, the red above the blue. As a patrolman on a U.S. Air Force base, of course, their first thought was maybe it was a downed plane. The two drove through the east gate down public roads before coming to a path that led into the forest. It was at this point they noticed a third white light. These lights were in a configuration they didn't recognize. And it was at this point they decided to drive back to their guard shack and phone it in. So after speaking with Sergeant Crash McCabe, McCabe phoned Staff Sergeant John Coffey. Coffey then called Staff Sergeant James Penniston. After a huge game of phone tag, we now have both James Penniston and John Burroughs, the two that actually end up interacting with the aircraft. Okay, so whoever answers the phone from Sergeant Crash, like, I want that Sergeant John Coffey to say, did you crash another plane, man? Like, how else did this guy earn that nickname? <laughs> yeah, that's a good. That's actually a good point. I never, I didn't even put that together. But yeah, McCabe probably crashed a vehicle at some point. And yeah, John Coffey, actually, if you recognize that name, I keep thinking of John Coffey from the Green Mile. I, I can't get that out of my head whenever I see his name. Oh, that's how it sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple other names. There's a ton of names in this. There's so many people involved in this. Um, but yeah, John Coffey, I was like, oh, wait, hold on a second. So after all this back and forth, James Penniston and his driver, Airman First Class Edward Cabinsag, meet up with Burroughs and Steffens at the East Gate. So Steffens makes the realization, and it's noted in the book, that he says, quote, it didn't crash, it landed. Oh, thank goodness for Crash McCabe. <laughs> yeah, right. At this point, Master Sergeant J.D. Chandler, the flight chief over both bases, is contacted, and he then reaches out to three control towers, Heathrow Airport in London, RAF Bodzi and RAF Watton. They confirmed that on radar, a bogey was identified. The bogey was lost after 15 minutes of radar contact. So it's at this point that Penniston requests backup, and Chandler decides to come out himself. So now, after all the chain of command stuff is out of the way, we have our final four. Penniston, Burroughs, Cabinsag, and Chandler. So this is where there starts to be diversions in the recollection of the story. The three men minus Chandler, proceed out, taking multiple dirt paths and their military jeep. The group has to abandon the jeep and walk the rest of the way on foot. It's at this point the lights are described as blue, red, white, and yellow. So now we're bringing a commander out here into this area. They have this unidentified object, but it's so real that they have to bring a commander out to verify it. Yeah, and I mean, you're familiar with bases in Europe when you stayed uh, in Germany. Uh, years ago, obviously, at this point, it's a ordeal to have someone of rank come out. But it, I think the the idea was, okay, if this might actually be a problem, if there's lights in the forest, either a an aircraft crashed, and you got to remember this is December twenty sixth at three a.m. That means it's three hours after Christmas Day. There weren't planes flying. No one's flying right now. It's a holiday. So they get the commander involved because either they're under attack. 
or a plane's crashed? Why would there be an aircraft in the woods right next to the base? When I was on base, like you knew who the commander was. His car um, was very obvious to everybody, like the chief commander of the base. Go anywhere, everyone was kind of like on their toes. So yeah, Chandler's not the only one. There's multiple commanders here that get that get involved. Chandler recounts that he arrived after the three men, seeing they had already entered the woods. But Cabin Sag recalls that Chandler was, quote, already on the scene. Did you get that, Jason? Yeah. I don't quite understand why that would be. The issue is the time discrepancies, and we'll talk about those here in a second. Yeah, I mean, I can see that the chief is saying that his men were already there, but then they're saying that he was there before them. I think it's a little bit of the confusion that happens when you have something this this magnitude occur. Oh, so you think something with the, the UFOs is messing with them? Yeah, either that or this kind of goes into conspiracy a little bit too. Like, was the U.S. government aware? Like, how do, why was he there and why is he saying he wasn't there before them? Oh, that makes sense. At this point, there's an issue with their radios and they begin to only work at short range. So they decide that they'll have to make a short, like a sort of daisy chain of radio connections. Chandler stays with the cars. Cabin Sag stops a little ways in to keep the connection with Chandler, which leaves Burroughs and Penniston alone. So this is where they're playing telephone when they say, oh, no, it's aliens. And there's and the guy in the back of the car is thinking, oh, they want coffee. <laughs> yeah, they want John coffee out here. <laughs> this is it gets a little wild here because the issue is that only Penniston and Burroughs are out there. What I think is funny is Cabin Sag is just by himself in the middle of the woods, which is probably freakier than either of the other people in, involved here. The two claim that as they approached the lights, the hair on their arms and neck began to stand up. They said the air was filled with static electricity, and it felt as if they were wading through deep water. They entered a small clearing, and at this point were struck by a flashing light. So they both dived to the ground, and they basically feared that there was an explosion that had occurred, but none had. At this point, we, we talked about there being a little bit of confusion as to who was where first. There's a, a, a bit of a time shift here. So Burroughs claims that over the course of maybe seconds, he only remembers seeing the explosion of light hitting the ground and seeing a red oval sun-like object shoot up into the sky. So then Penniston, on the other hand, claims to have seen Burroughs in a beam of light. And in lack of better words, and my perception of what they're talking about was that Burroughs was essentially frozen in place. Penniston then recalls seeing a small metallic craft in the middle of the clearing, roughly three meters tall by three meters wide. That's just under 10 feet or so. So I actually did put down, ask like how big meters were. I was actually writing that question down as you were saying it. Yeah, so three meters is right under 10 feet. So the craft is the shape of a triangle and said to be either hovering or sitting on a tripod. So Penniston, he approaches the craft and says it has strange symbols on its side. So like similar to Egyptian hieroglyphs. He takes photos and then sketches the symbols in his notebook. And so we'll get back to the photographs here in a minute. So remember that for me later, Jason, because I will have to talk about that again. But the symbols are in Nick Pope's book and you can see them like he they sketched them out. He has pictures of them in his book. And it kind of reminds me of like Klingon from Star Trek. So up close, the hole is smooth and similar to like black glass. Penniston runs his hand over the side of the craft. And then when he gets to the symbols, he touches those and says it's like a texture of sandpaper. So while he's touching the symbols, the lights on top of the ship, they turn on, and they're so bright, Penniston says he's temporarily blinded, which freaks him out, and he pulls his hand away. So as he does this, the, the light dims, and so does his sense of panic. So I actually watched the episode of Ancient Aliens that features Penniston and Burroughs, and I had honestly I had forgotten how dramatized that show was. But their episode is like 15 minutes of them being interviewed and going back to the location. And then the other 30 minutes or so is like all this conspiratorial stuff about the Vatican and the history of governmental cover-ups, going back to ancient Egypt. And it's all this filler. But there's about 15 minutes that, that deals with Penniston and Burroughs. Um, and he talks about this incident here. And so I'm not going to dig into all that stuff. But I did want to point out that in that interview from 2010... Penniston goes into detail about a binary code that's downloaded into his brain, like basically telepathically. So this is also discussed in the book, but like later on in the final chapter, and then also the notebook is, is photocopied in the appendix. He basically writes down a bunch of like ones and zeros in his notebook. And on the show, they decode a little bit of it, and it gives them like coordinates to a location off the west coast of Ireland. 
But the message that they come up with is exploration humanity continues for planetary advance. Oh, wow. Exploration humanity continuous for planetary advance. I, it might be that might be reaching a little bit. I mean, they had like a, an IT guy decode ones and zeros. And I mean, the notebook is full of ones. There's like so many pages of ones and zeros and he comes up with six words. So, I mean, he's probably, I think it might be reaching for like the show, but it is super interesting because basically the the way they talk about this and we'll, we'll get back to this because we're going to talk about this in part two, because this is a whole like can of worms, all this information, all these ones and zeros are, are like shot into his brain. He sees them in his mind's eye and then he's compelled to write them down. And after he writes them down, he doesn't see him anymore, but he wrote down all these ones and zeros. So after all this takes place, the ship starts to lift into the air. And after slowly making its way above the tree line, something like two to three minutes to do so, it shoots off into the air like incredibly fast. Pennison writes in his sketchbook, quote, speed, impossible. So what's super weird is that Burroughs says he has no memory of the event. And Pennison talks as if Burroughs was there, but kind of unresponsive and like a frozen state because he, he was in that beam of blue light. He also says that 72 hours later, when they're debriefing, Burroughs was able to sketch out what the craft looked like, but since then has no memory of that moment. So I'm wondering if like this flash of light kind of caused like a, not seizure, but obviously it wiped his brain. If he doesn't remember it, but when he was being debriefed, he was able to sketch what the craft looked like. It's kind of weird because that was like three days later that that happened. So he had memory for up to 72 hours. He sketches the craft and then he forgets it. 1980 was, what, 43 years ago? So it's been a while. But still, uh, it is weird that he just has no memory of the event. But a few days after all this took place, when he was being debriefed, he was able to sketch out the craft, which I think is interesting. So at this point, they follow the lights around a little bit more. And then it sounds like there was another moment where they thought it might land again, but it doesn't. They head back to the clearing and and remember it's December. So the ground is frozen and they talk as though it's like super frozen, like really hard. I mean, you know, uh, living in, in Ohio, those really, really cold months when the ground gets like rock solid. Oh, I remember like ice skating in my backyard because it was so frozen. You ice skated in your backyard. Essentially, I could sl- like you could slide on the ice because it was so cold one year. I do remember when it when it would freeze over, even the snow that got that would go down and the top of it would be like ice and it would get really compact. Okay. Yeah. But all, all that all that said, um, so the ground's really hard and they get back to the clearing. There's three marks in the ground as if something was resting on a tripod. So imagine a tripod making like a triangle shape. The indentations make a perfect equilateral triangle and they speculate whatever it was that was sitting there had to weigh several tons. And in order to make those indentations as deep as they did, it had to be something like super heavy. So they also noticed that branches pretty high on the trees on the edge of the clearing were snapped off and broken. Wow. So, I mean, it was like propelled in the air. Like it was in the air quite a bit. This wasn't like no short craft. Well, no, that was from takeoff. They're saying from takeoff, it knocked off limbs and disturbed the ground, all that stuff. Oh, I see. So at this point, they, they leave the area. And they meet back up with Cabin Sag and Chandler. And when they get back to the base, so there's another time issue here. They get back and there's a search party that's been formed because they had been no contact for a period of time. And then they realize when looking at their watches that they're missing about 45 minutes. So all four of their watches are 45 minutes behind. I, I believe all four watches. Uh, it doesn't specifically say that, but the way they talk about it, it's as if everyone that had a watch of those four they're 45 minutes off. So not just Burroughs and Penniston, but also Cabin Sag and Chandler. So I'm wondering if it was a possibility that um, the light hit all the other um, people other than um, Penniston, who got up close to the craft. I don't know. And the thing is, is I'm not sure how much you've like looked into like extraterrestrial stuff, but a common theme is this missing time thing. Whenever someone quote unquote interacts with a extraterrestrial being they always recall that there's a a period of time that's missing that they can't account for basically so before we talk through this i want to take a second and mention the fact that apparently a couple days later when it all really hits the fan when the base commander charles halt gets involved but during all the chaos burroughs runs into a guy named o'brien 
So who tells him that two people from D flight, I think they're C flight, but two people from D flight had an encounter that first night. Also, Lori Bain and John Tremontazzi. These people have some tough names. Lori sees a red orange object surrounded by a blue white aura descending into the trees. So like the other two, they saw red, green, and white lights kind of appearing and reappearing in the woods. They alert their superiors, Bonnie Tamplin and Bobby Ball. They drive the Jeep into the woods and it's caught in a bright blue light. Lori and John are following everything on the radio and they hear Tamplin yell, quote, Bob, Bob, where are you? I can't see anything. So this is the, what, the second encounter that we're seeing the same ship in the same area? So this is the second encounter. It's really interesting because like two two nights later, we're going to get to this when com- the base commander, Charles Halt, when he like does his whole thing and like the halt tape that we're going to show later, when all that craziness is going on, Burroughs is there. And while he's there, he runs into O'Brien and O'Brien tells him this story that he heard. So basically at the same time that Penniston and Burroughs were interacting with the craft, supposedly that same night, it happened with Bonnie Tamplin and Bobby Ball. Oh, wow. Did they have anything about the missing time? It didn't say anything about missing time. The blue light shining on the Jeep, that's the only kind of similarity it seems like that kind of came up. was, And the blue light comes up again later. Uh, but it is super interesting. It just talks about how that happened. And uh, the problem is, is that this story is relayed to Burroughs from O'Brien, from Lori. Because Lori was listening to the radio that Bonnie and that Bonnie Tamplin and Bobby Ball were using. Again, it's like telephone. They're like way down the line, but this is kind of the story was relayed to Burroughs and he felt that it was important to share it, at least in the book. Dang. So how many witnesses do we have now? I, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's a lot. It's, it's countless. And we are, we're about to have a bunch more. Oh my gosh. So at this point it's about 4am and due to protocol, they have to tell the local Suffolk police, the police go out in the middle of the night and they don't find anything. They did record that multiple people in the area reported seeing strange lights in the sky. And they actually end up going back out there later. And officially they do end up finding the disturbed area and they correct their records. Uh, The assumption is they went out there in the dark and didn't really know what they were looking for or where to look. And they just basically said, there's nothing out here. And the fact that the police went out there, um, and I mean, obviously it's nighttime. You can't really see, you know, indentions in the ground at nighttime. I mean, unless you're really looking for them. So there's no doubt that they missed this the first time. And it's really interesting because I think the biggest part of it is that it's like protocol. They have to call the local police. They have to tell them about this. It's 4 a.m. They're not wanting to go out in the middle of the woods because some people saw lights. So they run out there, they do their thing, they say, we don't see anything, and they come back. Yeah, that makes sense, too. Wanted to brush it off because it's Christmas. So at this point, it's 5 a.m. The base commander, Charles Holt, he comes in on shift. He's very by the book and has them write up what happened in a blotter. And then also to file an incident reports. So the way they talk about this, the blotters and the incident reports are almost immediately pulled and labeled top secret. Oh, big surprise there. Yeah, so these reporting tools they have immediately get taken. So now it's it's super early in the morning. Penniston and Burroughs haven't really been asleep yet, but they need to be debriefed and questioned. And there's a lot of names coming up here, but I don't want to miss anyone, so I'll run through them kind of here pretty quickly. This also shows the scale of witnesses to this incident. So Lieutenant Fred Skip Burren, the on-duty flight security officer, wakes Deputy Squadron Commander Major Edward Drury. He also notifies Major Ziegler and Colonel Conrad. Also, there's Captain Mike Verano. So they debrief Burroughs and Penniston, and they head out to the landing site. Also, there's Master Sergeant Ray Gullius. So they all get out there. They measure the landing site. Penniston and Burroughs, they leave. But the group stays, and they actually meet the British police officers out there. So the same officers who missed the landing site the previous night like probably just about two hours earlier. So this time they actually find data. They write it in their incident report. There's now a report with basically we found nothing, but then there's also some real evidence of something happening. Now Penniston goes back out there to make a plaster cast of the landing indentations. So on his way out, he runs into the group that's out there with the police. So he gets there. He does the plaster casts. 
And as he's walking out of the forest, he runs into that group and the police. Doesn't say anything about the plaster casts, and he goes home. They make a big deal of the plaster casts um, throughout the, the book as I was reading it. And also, actually, I don't think they talk about the plaster casts in any of the interviews that I watched. Um, but in the book, they talk about the plaster cast, mainly because all the photos, and we talked about this earlier, all the photos that are taken of the landing site, they're all damaged or they're not returned to them. So they take the film to get developed on base, but they hear back that they're fogged. They can't get any images off of them. So the plaster casts kind of play a bigger role here. So Master Sergeant Ray Gullius also makes a plaster cast. Pope in his book, he tries to make this big connection here between the two independently making plaster casts as if they were drawn to it by some unknown force. I mean, in reality, it's 1980. It may have just been something that they did. I mean, think of all like the Bigfoot plaster casts just prior to all of this. I think they make a big deal of it because all of the photos that were taken were said to have been foggy. But from the amount of radiation that was out there at that location, it feels more like a conspiracy thing to try to make something bigger out of this than what it was. But it is interesting that two different people make plaster casts without interacting with each other or talking about the casts. So let's take a second and we're going to talk through some of this because we just covered a ton and, and we're really only at the halfway point here. So Jason, do you have any thoughts on what we just talked about? So, I mean, yeah, lots. First off, the fact that we have so many witnesses um, that are in a respectable job in the military. I mean, it's not like the military obviously is just going to make this stuff up. Well, we wouldn't think that they would just make this stuff up. But, you know, we would think that you know, you got a commander, these people, you know, they would get in trouble for waking a commander for something silly, but they do it because they know that something's out there. And the fact that that's made such a big deal about, and they have to bring their commander out there at 4 a.m. in the morning, you know, if it's nothing out there and that commander like sees that there's nothing out there, he's going to be punishing those who woke him up at 4 a.m. in the morning. And the fact, like you said, this is after Christmas, I mean, this definitely could have been something where it was either another army attacking them or I know surveillance is a big issue with the military. Um, so that could have been a big fear that they were being um, surveyed by another country. Well, it's also 1980. So think about what's going on at that point. I mean, you have the Cold War, you have the Soviet Union, everyone's kind of on high alert. And then you have this, you have all these lights coming into the forest, possibly an aircraft on a holiday. Which, what better time to attack a base than during a time when everyone's kind of, it's probably a bare bones crew. Everyone just had Christmas Day with their family. Um, so everyone's kind of like, wait a minute, what is going on here? And you're right. It's kind of scary because what if it was the Soviet Union? I think you bring up another good point there too, is once again, it's 1980. The the type of aircraft, the only thing that could have landed the way this aircraft landed would have probably been a helicopter right yeah so i mean when you think about it that way the helicopter is not going to land in the middle of the forest because i mean that's super dangerous especially right next to a military base yeah exactly and it's not going to be quiet when it does so yeah and the fact that you also you don't have the typical markings on the ground did they say anything about footprints there's nothing about footprints on the ground but I think also you got to remember, I mean, you've walked on frozen ground. You don't leave footprints. So an al- what you're saying essentially is um, aliens came. They visited us. They got out of the spaceship, felt how cold our ground was, and was like, nah, screw this. We're out. Well, I would have said that, but they actually come back. So <laughs> <laughs> the fact that it's December and they landed in like the northern hemisphere when they could have landed on the southern hemisphere but at the same time and we're going to talk about this in part two because we have a lot more to cover they talk about how important these two bases are and so that kind of comes into play too like maybe these maybe it's the importance of the bases and that's why they chose this location to land that was my next question is there any historical foundations of these two areas where these bases were like has aliens popped up here before historically speaking that's a fantastic point because this area has a ton a ton a ton of rich history specifically aliens and or extraterrestrials i'm i'm not super sure about that i think we'll talk about like the history of the area 
um, in part two. When it comes to actual UFOs, I think you got to watch Ancient Aliens, and <laughs> they'll talk about the Egyptian hieroglyphs and the aliens helping them build the pyramids or whatever they do on that on that show. It is fun to watch. It is entertaining. When it comes to like research, I mean, I it is it is a lot to watch and read all these things and then try to come up with like an outline that I can just coherently bring a story to everybody. It is fun because I do really enjoy digging into this because you come up with different things. Like the book lays out certain things. What was super interesting is I was reading through the book and this kind of goes into this a little bit when when they're talking about interacting with the craft in the book, the the front part of the book, they don't talk about the code at all. So when I watched the interview and I watched the history channel stuff and I was reading elsewhere, and I was like, this code thing, where the heck does this come from? And I realized that, it's super interesting. I, I may talk, I think we talk about this later. The code is basically not talked about for 30 years. It's not, it's not discussed in the original debriefing that happens. It's talked about 30 years later after the fact. And so that's why there was like that discrepancy. But that's the thing with these sources is you have things that are important in one source that are less important in another source or are, are talked about in a way and I, I try my best to be objective, but I, I you know I know inevitably I lean one way or the other, honestly. I, I mean I think I think it's human nature to do that. Yeah, and I mean, can you blame him about the code though? Because so if I have three other guys that go and see this ship with me, and they can all verify that that ship was there, but I'm the only one that gets this binary code in my head, I'm not gonna go and tell too much to the public because I, I don't want to be sent to the hospital. <laughs> I don't want to be locked up in the hospital for the rest of my life. Of course I might not sleep for the rest of my life, but you're going to end up like the tennis player from the wall street bombing <laughs> in, a, in, a, in the sanitarium. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get back to everything. It's now the evening of December the 27th. There's an awards dinner happening on base with Conrad and Halt is also there. He's attending. Um, and we talked about Commander Hall earlier. So at some point in the night, Lieutenant Bruce England comes in and pulls Halt aside. He says, it's back. Halt is kind of distracted by what's going on in the award dinner. And he says, what's back? England says, quote, the UFO is back, sir. So I'd be like, all right, um, I'm going to need a few more drinks. Yeah. He's like, crap. So Conrad is the ranking officer and he basically tells Holt, you need a good team together and you got to go investigate. The team consists of Holt, England, Sergeant Monroe Nevels, who brought his camera and Geiger counter and the on-duty flight chief, Master Sergeant Bobby Ball. And you remember Bobby Ball was the one that was in the Jeep earlier. So at this point, I want to take a second and, and make a comment. From here on out, there tends to be a little bit of chaos that unravels. A lot of people on base are familiar with what happened just two nights before, or rather about 3 a.m. on December 26th. There's a lot of people paying attention now, and it, it speaks to the, the many witnesses involved on the base. So this is mainly due to the fact that Holt wanted to bring with them light alls, which are those lights on stands with independent generators. You see them in movies and stuff. They basically are just lights you can bring with you, like a lamp, essentially, uh, but it has a generator that powers the light without any cables or whatever. These lights were malfunctioning or they were out of gas or they basically weren't working. And so Holt had to get more people involved to fill them up or get new lights. But because more people were alerted, it basically just spread across the base like wildfire. So to further explain the situation, Airman Tony Bresciano from the Fuels Management Branch was tasked with getting gas for the light alls. So he gets to the gas station. There's basically a line of vehicles there to fill up Lytles. So they're attached to trucks. They're all over the place. And there's also vehicles waiting to fuel. And it, it's basically a madhouse of uh, people trying to get involved in the unfolding events. Other than the team, Pope in his book claims that through the chaos, undisputedly, Sergeant Frail, Sergeant Adrian Vestinza, and Burroughs were also there that night. And this is actually when Burroughs runs into Sea Flight, who tells him that they had their own encounter around the same time uh, that his took place. And remember the Jeep that got caught in the blue light? This is where he learns about that. So um, Burroughs hears this for the first time um, right around now. 
they actually had their own incident report and they go on to speculate that there's a cover up because that information should have gotten back to Burroughs, but it was withheld or taken or ended up top secret somewhere. Anyways, it's it's at this point that Holt begins his cassette recording of the night in question. It's about 18 minutes long, and I'm actually going to play the part of that here. Not the whole thing, but we'll, we'll play about five, six minutes uh, of that or so. And we'll, that's a little bit later here on. But I'll talk about those first 12 minutes or so before we get into that five, six minute clip. But you can find the entire transcript uh, of the eight minute tape online. It's in writing. It's in Pope's book. Um, the, the transcript is in the appendix. There's also like numerous places online where you can listen to it. It's in the public domain. Wikipedia has like a the clip. It's like 17 minutes, 52 seconds. So the first part of this tape has to do with the light alls and trying to, to get either working ones out there or more gas. The first thing Halt does is have Neville use his Geiger counter at the site to measure the level of radiation. And they come back with low or just minor clicks. So they're safe to hang around and take measurements. So they measure the indentations and also the center and they get a, quote, pulse on the Geiger counter. Halt says, quote, we found a small blast, what looks like a blasted or scuffed up area here. We're getting very positive readings. Let's see. Is that near the center? So England says, yes, it, it is. So it's the center. Oh, wow. So did they find the triangle marks on the ground still? They, they do see the indentations on the ground that create the, that create the triangle. At this point, they're just measuring the center or the area for radiation. So this continues on for a while. At some point, someone walks on the indentations and Halt has to tell them to watch out where they're walking. Uh, so they go on pointing out broken branches and abrasions on the tree that face the center of the clearing as if something damaged the trees on the way out. So they take samples of the soil, uh, the sap from the pine trees, and, and Halt points out round abrasions on the trees about four inches in diameter. He, he says that they, the one that he's looking at looks like it's it's old, but that there's like a crystalline pine sap there. And there's other trees with like similar damage. They also take a bunch of pictures and the tape goes with them taking readings, marking things, basically collecting samples, etc. So this tape is a lot about recording about what they, they've seen with all the damage from where the ship was landing and um, where it was. Yeah, so the, the front part of the tape is they're just taking measurements. They're talking. They have like a starlight scope. They're looking through to, to read heat signatures. They're basically just trying to write down everything that they're seeing, the radiation, the amount of clicks, all that. They're just surveying the area. And it takes most of the front part of the tape. The very early part of the tape is the light alls. Then it's all the measuring, all that stuff. And then so they get into, they have the starlight scope. It reads heat signatures, and they're using it on the trees in the clearing, and they're getting heat readings on these trees. And they're also getting readings from the center of the clearing where the craft had taken off. I'm so curious about these four-inch four inch abrasions on the trees. Yeah, it's interesting that they point that out, especially because he's like, oh, well, it looks like it might be old. But he talks about there being a crystalline structure, which I assume means that they don't really – I mean, he doesn't explain that with the tape. But I assume it means that there was pine sap in that circle. Like think about like a tree where a branch falls off and it's a circle. I, I'm kind of wondering if it's that. But it's interesting because I think what they're trying to, to say or sp speculate is that maybe there, there was a heat source that caused the pine sap to like crystallize. I, I'm not really sure. But they, they talk about like a crystalline structure on that spot. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's around this point. When Holt notices the barnyard animals start to kind of freak out. And so I'm going to roll the tape here. Again, the tape is about 18 minutes long. And this part's going to be about five minutes. I just want to say we are not responsible for um, loss of sleep tonight. Yeah, I, I feel fantastic. I'm going to sleep like a baby. <laughs> Looks like someone came off about 15 to 20 feet up. Some small branches about an inch or less in diameter. Zero 148, we're hearing very strange sounds out of the farmers burning our animals. It's very, very active, making an awful lot of noise. It has been a pigmentation. You just saw a light Where? Right on this position here, straight ahead in between the tree. There it is again. Watch, straight ahead off my flashlight right there. Yeah, so there it is. Hey, I see it too. What is it? 
We don't know, sir. So, yeah, can I get some more? Yeah, it's a strange, small red light. Looks like uh, maybe a quarter to a half mile, maybe further out. I'm going to switch off. The light is gone now. It was approximately 120 degrees from the site. Is it back again? Yes, sir. Oh, that's the flashlight set. Let's move out to the edge of the clearing so I can get a better look at it. See if you can get the star scope on it. The light's still there, and all the barnyard animals have gotten quiet now. Yeah, we're heading about 110 to 120 degrees from the site. I'm through to the clearing now. Still getting a reading on the meter. About two clicks. Maybe come three to four clicks. Getting stronger. Now it's uh, Now it's coming up. Hold up. There we go. About a track. Four foot off the ground. Right, I just turned the meter off. Got to say that again. About four feet off the ground, about 110 degrees, getting a reading of about four clicks. Yes, sir. Yeah, but it's... <coughs> it's dying. No, it's not. I think it's something other than the ground. I think it's something that's... Something very like a tree right over. We just felt the first night bird we've seen. We're about 150 or 200 yards from the site. Everything else is just deathly calm. There's no doubt about it. There's some type of strange flashing red light ahead. There's yellow. I saw a yellow tinge in it, too. Weird. It, it, it appears to be maybe moving a little bit this way. Yes, it's, it's brighter than it has been. Yellow. It's coming this way. Awesome. It's definitely coming this way. Pieces of it are shooting off. There's no doubt about it. This is weird. So the that was crazy, dude. Like I'm sitting there listening to it, and as they're looking at this area, like getting all this evidence, 
you, you oh i mean i guess obviously this is my first time hearing this but i mean there was i was not prepared to hear that they were going to see these lights again that's why i wanted to do it the way that we did it because like i listened to the tape a couple times i read the transcript and there's a lot of like minutiae before this happens them on tape all of a sudden think about how eerie that is the barnyard animals start making weird noises and all of a sudden there's lights in the sky and then if you heard them they're talking about their geiger counter jumping up so more radiation more amounts of radiation happening the fact that like this guy is like as calm as can be and is just saying oh yeah it's like hovering four feet off the ground which might i add aircrafts can't do unless it's a helicopter but the way this thing was moving it didn't sound like it was a helicopter and they would have heard the noise of the blades if it was a helicopter i think there is a little bit of panic in his voice he's calm i mean he's a base commander it's 1980, so he probably was in Vietnam, maybe Korea. And so, like, he's probably seen some stuff. He's, like, by the book. I, I imagine, I, I keep picturing my grandfather, because he, right around 1980, military, Korea, Vietnam, and then by that time was getting close to retirement. I imagine, like, that, how buttoned up this guy is, by the book this guy is. And then he's on tape, and he's, like, recalling what he's seeing. And it's a UFO. I mean, it's, like, some crazy stuff happening. The also, I want to I wanna talk about this just for one second, the tape like ends super abruptly. He now says that there's four or five hours of tape out there somewhere, but there's only about 18 minutes that got released. And I think it was through the Freedom of Information Act that they were able to secure this this 18-minute log. But he said that there's four or five hours worth of tape that exists somewhere. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Does he go on to say what else he says in that tape? No, there's an interview where they ask him and he just says no comment, which I don't know why. I, you know, either that's an easy way to say, hey, you got a bunch of extra recording out there. Oh, what, what to say? Ah, I can't say. That's an easy way to like brush it off. Or it was something so crazy that he doesn't want to talk about it or that the government's saying don't talk about it. Yeah, back to you don't want to get put into the hospital for having a binary code downloaded to your brain. Yeah, you end up at the sanitarium. Yeah, but also there's the fact that he was in between two aircrafts, not just one. But they said they saw one in the north and one in the south, correct? Yeah, it started off as like just lights from one location, but it does split into multiple lights. So basically at least two craft that were yeah north and south. Yeah, and then the fact that he's like, oh, it's moving towards us. And there's a beam of light coming down. <laughs> let's stand here and watch and see what happens. Like, nah, bro, I'm out. Yeah, I like let's bounce. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that always catches me, and this is like way off topic, but he says, we just crossed the creek. And he calls the creek a creek. And it just reminds me of like my cousins. <laughs> and, and like when I was a kid growing up and we'd play in the creek. And they'd all called it the creek. But it was, yeah, all that said, it is wild. Because the way that he talks through that whole encounter there's like a little bit of like eeriness to the whole thing. And you're just sitting there listening to these guys. They're looking through the starlight scope. They're looking at the heat signatures. They're talking about that. And then he's talking about this aircraft. And it's close enough that they look at it through the starlight scope. And he talks about seeing it looks like an eye looking at them blinking. Which that's got to be freaky if all this is like true. Yeah. So essentially, this is what's going to happen. If me and Paul were out there um, at this time, you know, and we have this commander and the commander is going on and recording this this audio, I would be interested. I guess this is kind of dumb, but in my opinion, I would shoot at the thing, Um, especially when I see the the beam of light coming down. Um, I would have guns drawn and I would say, all right, commander, we can go forward and try to take this one down. But then Paul would be in the back saying. Commander, did you just say crit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about the crick. And Jason's like, let's shoot it. So two things with that. First of all, probably not super smart shooting at an alien aircraft. I imagine it shoots a blue light at you. You freeze in time. I mean, that's not good. Second, and we didn't talk about this during this process, but they're off base. So they're on uk soil oh you're right so one thing they talk about is like they're technically allowed to have firearms out there if there's a threat but multiple times they talk about when they go out there they leave their firearms behind them back at the base they can have the technically have the firearms but it's 
not U.S. soil. It's the U.K. So in that case, then I would just be like, all right, boss, um, I'm going to head back to the base. I'll have dinner ready. Yeah. So that's there's a lot there. There is quite a bit there. I think I think the best way to, to go about that was to play those five minutes because it's kind of hard to explain what they're saying on there. I mean, he says, wow, strange, like 50 times. But I wanted to, to play the at least those last five ish, five, six minutes of clip for the audience here. Yeah, the hairs on my arm were standing up because at first, like it was just like, oh, you know, check that heat signature, check that heat signature. And then it's like, wait, what's that? out there is that is that is that a red light yeah i think the scariest part is the barnyard animals and it goes back to what the memo that i read at the beginning of the episode where he talks about the barnyard animals freaking out with peniston and burrows as well they don't they don't talk about that or recall that i don't i don't remember reading that in the book from them that memo i think refers to the barnyard animals i don't know if it specifically is referring to it for peniston and burrows but it's definitely the fact that these animals are starting to freak out. They're noticing something. Something's going on. It's freaky. It's probably sounds that we can't hear. Yeah, could be. So do you have any closing thoughts, Jason? I mean, I'm hoping that I can go to sleep tonight, for one thing. For two, I have so many questions, but I have a gut feeling that you have done enough research to answer all of them in the next episode. Yeah, and that's that's a good handoff because so basically what we're going to do is we're going to have to sit down and record part two. It's going to consist of like theories, the story throughout the years, because it does kind of change from what I was reading. Um, and I want to circle back to the code as well. So there's quite a bit uh, we have to cover before we give our final thoughts on what we think. So as always... Thanks so much for listening to The Anecdotalist. Come back and listen to Episode 4, Part 2 of the Rindlesham Forest Incident.